Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Robbie Baxter. I'm uh, the Assimilation Director here at Christ Community Church. Cameron, our uh, pastor, has been away this week at uh, General Assembly, and uh, this morning is preaching at a church over there in Dallas. So do continue to keep him in your prayers. I think he comes back uh, tomorrow afternoon. So, uh, Well, this morning we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So if you would, turn your copies of Scripture there with me, Ephesians chapter 3. And um, we've been, uh, but really this is part two uh, of what we've been calling a purposeful prisoner, Paul's life in Christ. And um, you might think of it as, what are some, what does the gospel have to say to us when, when life gets difficult and, and things don't work out the way that we had hoped them to, or they don't meet, meet our expectations? Does the gospel, does the doctrine of who Jesus is for his people have anything to say to us and if it does, how does that shape the way that we view not only ourselves and the Lord and the redemption that we have in Christ, but also those very circumstances? And what we're going to focus in on um, this morning, what our text encourages us to, to look at, is God's wisdom. And, and I think that raises a question for us straight away, and that is, what has most affected your understanding and practice of wisdom? Because we all have an idea of what wisdom is, and we all have an idea of how to practice it, and what the results of wisdom should be in our lives. And, and as, as I was thinking over this uh, this week, I thought that um, perhaps you can resonate with this, probably the, the way that I'm just wired naturally to think about wisdom, and, and maybe it's a product of the culture too, is very self-centered. Wisdom really is doing the right things to make my life a success and, and to make it happy and, and enjoyable. Um, and I think that's probably the way our culture defines wisdom more often than not. It, wisdom is, is doing the sorts of things, um, behaving in such a way, making the right sorts of plans so that your life turns out successfully. But one of the things that this text encourages us to, to focus on is that God defines wisdom very differently. God defines wisdom as reconciliation. You see, God's wisdom is his ability to act in such a way as to reconcile the irreconcilable. And don't hear me in the wrong key. This does not mean, of course, that in this life, the, the redemption that we have in Christ totally knocks away with all the consequences that, that sometimes accrue to the bad decisions that we've made. Um, but it does mean that, that God's wisdom is displayed in his ability to reconcile the irreconcilable, to bring people back into his family that had wandered away, to, to take people who, who would naturally be enemies with one another, um, who naturally would not have, want to have anything to do with the Lord Jesus and to make them lovers of Jesus and lovers of one another and, and to grow in that and to experience the joy of their salvation in that. That's God's wisdom. So wisdom for us, I think, is acting in such a way as to bring about opportunities, opportunities for us to testify to the reality of the reconciliation that we have um, in God, in Christ. You see, that is, wisdom is seeing the opportunities that God has sovereignly placed before us in which we can witness to our friends and our neighbors and our families about the reconciliation that is available for them and for us uh, in Christ Jesus, that, that Jesus has accomplished for us by grace alone, through faith alone, in, in Christ alone. And, and so with that introduction, let, let's see it from the text itself. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, we'll pause there for, for just a minute. You see, Paul begins this passage by reminding us of his office as a minister. He is a minister of the gospel, the good news that there is reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was made a minister according to, as he says, according to the gift of God's grace. That is to say that Paul was made a minister. He didn't assume this office for himself. He didn't decide one day, I, I think I'd like to be a preacher of the gospel. No, he was given that office by God himself and only because God made him one, very kindly made him one of his abundant grace. And his ministry was given to him by the working of God's power. We see this too. That is to say that God made Paul a minister by his own power, not because Paul had done anything to deserve it, not because Paul was especially smart, although we know that he probably was, or that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees or the Hebrew of Hebrews, not anything like that. Paul doesn't list his credentials as he says, I was made a minister. No, he lists the power of God. It's the power of God that made me a minister. On the contrary, considered in himself, Paul considers himself the least of all the saints. It's amazing to him, therefore, that God chose him to be a vehicle to bring salvation to the Gentiles, to preach the good news. That fact just boggles Paul's mind because he considers himself to be the least of all the saints. But God, who is rich in mercy, works through people that are weak and broken to make known his grace and power, and so that all the praise and glory for the effects of their ministry goes to him. So although Paul was the least of all the saints, this grace was given to him so that he would preach to the Gentiles, the very people who were cut off and far away from the promises of God. This gospel comes through the ministry of Paul to the very people we would least expect to receive it. So the very person that we would least expect to be the minister to the Gentiles brings the, the good news of the, of the gospel to the very people, the Gentiles, who we would least expect to receive it. I mean, it's a, it's a great chain of reminding us of God's graciousness and his reconciliation and his ability to reconcile the irreconcilable, even in the very people he has chosen to preach this message. So it's to the Gentiles that Paul has been given the privilege of making known the unsearchable riches of Christ. We, we could also use the phrase, the untraceable riches, you see, the idea here is that in Christ are riches that are so great you could never find their outer limit if you tried. They are unfathomable. Christ's riches are greater than the riches of any king or potentate or billionaire that ever lived and greater than all their riches combined. Christ's riches are greater than anything you or I could possibly even imagine or ever dream for ourselves or for our children or for our children's children. And they are greater than every ambition you have ever had and greater than the sum total of all the joy from every ambition from every person who has ever lived on the, place, on the face of the planet Earth. And cast into the ocean of Christ's riches, you and I would never find the shore or never sink to the bottom, though we would swim for all eternity. And it is about these riches that Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles. Do you know about these riches? Do you know what it means to be called a child of God? To have the unchangeable promise that he will never leave you or forsake you the unchangeable promise that he will never leave you or forsake you, to be sure that you are numbered among the people for whom all of history and all creation is working to prepare you for glory. And is this knowledge reflected in your life? How, how could you tell? You might tell by where you direct your thanks 
for the life and breath that you have and for everything? Do you direct it into the, the vast ether, to the great void, or do you direct your thanks to God? How often do you pause to celebrate God's goodness and to remark upon his kindness with, with others? I think this is the, one of the most beneficial things that, that I've uh, found in, the, in this past year is just pausing to, especially with others, just to thank the Lord for, for little things. I often remark to my brothers, we'll just be hanging out in our home and, and just think to myself, the Lord is so kind to have provided this, this home for us. And I know, of course, that a lot of it was, you know, we, we have to pay the rent, and if we don't pay the rent, we're going to get kicked out, we also have to pay the bills, and I'm not knocking all of that when I say that. No, I'm, I'm recognizing the Lord is very kind to us to provide this, or the job that I have, or the car that I drive, um, or even I was leaving the office earlier this week, um, and the sun was setting, and it was a cool summer night, and, and the breeze was blowing, and the cicadas were chirping, one of my favorite sounds of, of summertime, and I just paused to think, the Lord is so kind and, and so good, and, and that's been so good for my soul because it's not only helped me to get out of myself, I can be so introspective and, and so morbidly introspective, it's also helped me to recognize I have these things because of God's graciousness and, and kindness. And so that's, that's been helpful to me to just to see the great and unsearchable and unfathomable riches that are mine in Christ, and, and I commend that to you too. You might also tell... Um, whether you know about the riches of Christ, by what you do with the resources that you've been given. You see, do our gifts facilitate our Christianity, or does our Christianity, we try to use our Christianity to facilitate our gifts? You see that Paul's mission was to bring the light of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And that means that God has a purpose in his creation, and all the things that we love and enjoy and have been given and, and that one overriding aim in everything that we have and all the gifts that we have is to bring to light the, the, the mystery that has been hidden for ages in Christ. That, that is that God's aim has to, been glo to glorify Christ in the way that he serves and reconciles his people. And so we, we can tell by the way that we sometimes use our gifts um, whether we, we, we really understand that truth. You, you see, I have the feeling that often in our day um, we, we have the idea um, just as the rest of the world does, uh, that it's nice to, to have a, a good life, and, and for a good life, you, you kind of need to act in a certain way, right? Don't make foolish decisions, um, you know, be, be morally strict, serious, um, and, and we'd like our children to be well-adjusted in, in this world and, um, and all the sorts of things that, that, that appeal to us. And, and oftentimes, we can, we, can, we can make a shift in our thinking so that we use Christianity, or we use discipleship, we use reading our Bibles, or, or, or doing church, or that sort of thing, fellowship, praying, as a way to, to build up and edify and to secure all these all sorts of other things out there that we would like to have, rather than is recognizing, no, those are the raw material, that, that's, those are the resources with which we get to know Jesus better and, and more particularly serve each other and serve our neighbors for the life of the world. And so we, we might question ourselves every now and then. Are we using the resources that we've been given to glorify the Lord, or are we using our Christianity to, to glorify those, those other things that we might like to have? So you see, and I, and I think it can be also revealed in, in, in maybe our indifference to what seems to strike Paul so, so profoundly about the fact that he has been given this mission to bring the light of the gospel to the Gentiles. Again, not only can he not get over the fact that he's been, he himself, Paul, has been made this minister, he can't almost seemingly get over the fact that he's been given this ministry to the Gentiles, to, to see them folded into the great promises of the Lord. But oftentimes I think that just strikes us as, well, maybe we just tend to be a little bit indifferent about it. 
And so if this doesn't strike you as incredible, may I suggest that one reason may be that we are far too individualistic in our thinking and in our living. And so let's remind ourselves of a few things. First of all, the most important fact about each one of us is not our individuality, the things that make us separate and unique from one another. The most important fact about every single one of us is our union with Jesus, that we belong to Jesus. That's the most important fact about us. Or, or to use the language of our text, the most important fact about you is your having been made a member of one body, the church. Union with Christ and membership in his body are, are really two perspectives on the same reality, being uh, or belonging to, to Jesus. And that's the most important fact about every single one of us, bar none. Belonging to Jesus is the greatest fact that could ever be said about anyone. No one else has the riches that Jesus has. No one makes the kinds of promises that Jesus makes. And no one else can even keep the kind of promises that Jesus makes. Everything in life belongs to Jesus. And time is carrying it toward him with, with breakneck speed. So to be included in his promises, promises which he has made with the church and with no other, is the most wonderful thing that could, that could ever conceivably happen to you. And thus, to be included in his body is the most wonderful treasure that you could possibly receive. So, so the mystery that you and I are included in, in this one body, the, the, the church, the, the, the people that God has created all things for and is, is moving all things toward, um, is the most wonderful mystery that could ever be comprehended. How is it that, that God could be so gracious and merciful as to include me in the people of God, or to include you, uh, us Gentile, people who... The, at one point in history, we're just the farthest from the promises of God that you could ever be. So you, one implication of this, by the way, is that you have an interest in the life of every single person in Christ Community Church, no matter how different they may be from you, how, no matter how different their life experiences may have been, or, or different their upbringing was, or different the, the, the present challenges that they're going through, you have as much an interest in their life as you do in your own, because they belong to the one body of Jesus, and you belong to the one body of Jesus, and you are not your own, you belong to Jesus, and they are not their own, they belong to Jesus. So you have as much interest in the life of everyone in Christ Community Church as you do in your own. And God has done all these things, made us one body, made us one people, as different and diverse as we can sometimes be, or as different as our life ambitions can sometimes be, or the goals that we have, or, or the, the history that we have. God has done all of this, made us one people, and is directing all of this to glorify Jesus, to demonstrate to, particularly to, the rulers and authorities his unfathomable wisdom. This is confirmed in other places in Scripture. The gospel is, things, is a thing in which uh, angels long to look, First Peter tells us. Or, or Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We even see in 1 Corinthians, it's a bit of a tricky passage to understand exactly what Paul is talking about, but, but in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that at least uh, we can tell that the angels observe us in corporate worship. Or even in Revelation 5, think about the, the great chorus of angels who testify before God's throne, saying with a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So we know that angels take a great interest in what happens in the life of God's people. And in a sense, all that God is doing is observed by them as, as a great, wonderful story. And we, the church, serve as actors on the stage of God's glory to, test, to testify to his great wisdom in reconciling people who were, at one point, almost irreconcilable. Now, why should it concern God to display his wisdom before the angels? The answer from our text seems to be so that they can see his power and love for his people, whom he has loved and given an inheritance in Christ. 
The church, therefore, as I say, is the theater of God's wisdom. None of us could come up with a better purpose for living than to be participants in God's story through the life of his people, the church. So if you want an interest or if you want a reason to be invested in the life of the church, this is really it. Oh, that we would see clearly this truth. So what most affects your view of the church? Are you making the most of the opportunity to participate in the display of God's wisdom before a watching heavenly host? And that's an important thing to ask ourselves every now and then, because as I say, I have the feeling that oftentimes in our day, uh, we, we just view, um, we view our lives as the most important thing that's going on, and we view them as disconnected, as really divorced from the life of the church. Oh, we may go to church on Sundays, and oh, we may do the fellowship thing, we may do church, but oftentimes we're tempted anyway to use it just as a means to facilitate our own individual lives, whereas the Lord's wisdom is really displayed in us being able to be the one body of Christ and to serve one another and to use our individuality, which is wonderful, and, and all the gifts that God has given us to be a blessing to our family, the, the church, and, and to our neighbors and, and to the world. Hear what William Hendrickson said about God's wisdom. He says, God's wisdom reconciles seeming irreconcilables. God in Christ produces life by means of death, Glory by means of shame, the shame of the cross, the blessing by means of the curse, power by means of weakness, and we could probably go on and on and on. Even in your own lives, I'm sure, if you've been walking with Jesus even for a very little time, you have seen that God has worked in ways to reconcile things that seemed almost irreparably broken. And what a great testament that is to God's ability to do the things that seem impossible to us for the life of his people and to demonstrate his great glory and his great love. Well, let's turn again to the text and see how this ought to shape, Paul expects it to shape, our confidence in the Lord. Picking up in verse 11. He says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Another question for us, I think, that this, is, this raises, what most, uh, most affects your confidence in God? What most affects your confidence in God? As you're pondering that, hear this. This was according, this gospel was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So your life in Christ and your participation in the body of Christ displays God's wisdom according to God's plan. The whole creation has been made for this. Now, the implication that Paul draws for us is that we, therefore, have boldness and access in, uh, to God with confidence through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not dependent upon our doing the right sorts of things to earn the attention from God that we so desperately need. No, God's wisdom is displayed in his condescension to sinners like us and his invitation to come back, to run, as Josh said, to the throne of grace and not away from him. So what does it mean to have confidence through faith? It means trusting that God's promises in Christ Jesus are true. If all this is true, namely that God created the world to display his wisdom through his people, the church, if it is true that his purpose is to so care for his church so that everything works for their good, so that his wisdom is made manifest before the angels, then we ought to have the greatest confidence that God is for us. And that great confidence, as I say, doesn't stand or fall upon our behavior. 
And the confidence that Jesus is for us doesn't stand or fall upon our ability to merit God's attention. No, God invites us, broken as we are, uh, the messes uh, that we have made, um, the difficulty it seems oftentimes for us to see the way forward and to see hope, to see, so to see the day uh, dawning, as difficult as all that is, God invites us to have bold confidence in him because of what Jesus has done for his people and nothing else. Nothing else. And so it invites us then to run to the Lord, to say to the Lord in the times of despair and brokenness, Lord Jesus, I, I have nothing else. I, I need you. I need you. To run, as we, as we sung, to the throne of grace. And Paul expects that this fact will encourage us despite the appearances of this world where things are often discouraging. In fact, he says to the Ephesians, we could paraphrase him this way, don't lose heart over the fact that I am in prison suffering for you because of my calling to preach the gospel. And then he says this very strange thing, this is really your glory. What could possess Paul to say such a strange thing? Or, or even to put it another way, he is saying, really, look how much God loves you, that he is willing to spend me in um, your service so that you would know the gospel of reconciliation. Look how much God spends in order to bring you the immeasurable riches of Christ, how much he must love you. And he's saying to this to people who, just like us today, oftentimes are indifferent to the gospel, oftentimes forget it, oftentimes make a mess of things when we refuse to trust the promises of the Lord, when we refuse to, to forsake the treasures of Egypt and, and to go our own way and to think that there's more joy to be found in the deceitful promises of sin than there is in Christ. And then predictably, it all comes crumbling around uh, about us and, and we don't know, Lord, how is this going to be made right? And sometimes even in this life, it may not be completely made right, but Paul is still encouraging us to see, look how much the Lord loves you, that he would spend so much in your behalf. So John Calvin says, faith produces confidence which again in its turn produces boldness. These are, there are three stages, he says. There are three stages in our progress. First, we believe the promises of God. Next, by relying on them, we obtain that confidence, which is accompanied by holiness and peace of mind. And last of all comes boldness, which enables us to banish fear and to come with firmness and steadiness into the presence of God. So first, we believe the promises of God. Believing the promises of God really is that simple. It's not a magic formula. It really is just hearing the promises of God and saying, I know, Lord, that you are faithful. And it's also reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness to us and to his people throughout redemptive history. You see, the, the promises of God and believing in the promises of God is not a blind leap into the dark, as, as, almost as if to say, well, I've got no other option. I might as well just believe Jesus. No, it's to recognize I see, Lord, what you've done in history for your people. I see, Lord, what you've done for me, broken and weak as I know myself to be, and I believe your promises that they are true, despite the appearances of the world. Paul is in prison for the Ephesians, and probably at that point in time, they, they just couldn't see, well, how does this work into God's plan? Paul is, has all this wonderful language about the church being the vehicle for the display of God's wisdom, and he's calling us to love one another, and, and really, in a sense, to, to lay aside our individual lives and the goals and ambitions that we've had for ourselves, and, and to view ourselves as one body, the body of Christ. And he's saying all of this, and yet, there he sits in a Roman prison. How does that figure? How does that work? And, and then Paul says this very strange thing. You ought to really see this as for your glory. 
and, and producing confidence and boldness in the promises of God. And that just, man, when we really grasp this, when we really understand it, we, we see that it gives us the most unshakable confidence despite the, the, the changing moods that we sometimes go through or, or the discouraging experiences that we have or even just the wreck that we can sometimes make of our own lives to know that God is working through these things to display his wisdom because he's able to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable. He's able to take the brokenness and work it for the benefit and good of his people. Or even to think about it in another way, Paul told the Corinthians when they were getting all sideways, they, they had all these sorts of cliques and, and factions in the church, and, and some were saying, well, I, I'm with Paul, and others were saying, I'm with Apollos, and, and it just getting all crazy. And the way that Paul rebuked them wasn't to say, look, you guys, knock all that off. I mean, he does say that, but, but in a very specific way. He says, look, remember, Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. And then he goes on, life is yours. Death is yours. That's, that's always been one of the most striking things to me. In, in, well, there are many striking things in the Bible. One of them is that death could be ours. That, that, death, that God is able to use death to prepare his people for glory. And so you see, God's wisdom is displayed in the gospel and his ability to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable. And that gives us the greatest confidence because, yes, oftentimes we make a mess of it. And if our ability to run to the throne of grace with confidence was dependent upon what we had done this week, even to merit God's, a split second of God's attention, we would be totally undone and, and we could not go anywhere. But our ability to, to run to the throne of grace with confidence that Jesus is for us and is working, even the mess that we have made, for our benefit, to draw us near to Christ and to glorify his, his name even before watching angels, it gives us the most unshakable confidence in his purposes for us and in all that the gospel means for us. And so run to the throne of grace. There, there is so much comfort in this passage to enable us to know that, that God loves us and that he's able to, to display his wisdom even in the mess that we oftentimes uh, make. So... What does Ephesians 3, 7 through 13 teach us? I would say just this. God demonstrates his wisdom by our redemption from sin and reconciliation to him in Christ. And, and oh, what a treasure there is in, in that fact. May we, may we believe it. May we run to him uh, every day, trusting that his promises are true and believing in them and, and banking on them and hoping in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the fact that you have invited us to come to you and to know you um, and to know your promises. Lord, you know our frame. You know that we and ourselves are very weak. You, you know even at the best of times that, that our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And yet, Lord, these things do not cause you to turn your face away from us. Instead, you hold out your arms wide and say, believe in the gospel. And, and see all the ways in which I have reconciled the irreconcilable. So, Lord, would that be uh, the direction in which our gaze goes, even in the difficult periods of life? And would it be so a part of who we view ourselves as and who we view you as and who we view the church as? The people looking in would see that we have a God who is great in wisdom, that we would be witnesses and testifiers of the great wisdom that you've displayed in Christ so that you would get all the glory and we would live in the joy of our salvation. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.